Good afternoon, Chris. Thanks for coming on live with C Sharp. It is definitely a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, wonderful to see you as always, and I'm really excited today. The Detroit Symphony Orchestra's Civic Youth Ensembles, they're celebrating 50 years of impacting lives through music. And you and I both had great experiences coming up through that program, and it definitely guided us as musicians and people. We were surrounded by such great leaders like Daisy Newman, mm -hmm. visionaries like Charles Burke, mm -hmm. um, legendary musicians, Mr. Marcus Belgrave, Mr. Rodney Whitaker, and the list goes on. Can you talk about how your uh, participation in the civic program impacted you not only as a musician, but of course, as a person? Yeah, definitely. Um, by the time I got to to have some involvement with the civic programs, you know, I was already doing a lot at South of Lathrop, uh, working with Damian Crutcher, my band director, and I had started to do some programs um, at University of Michigan with their youth programs as well as Michigan State. The biggest difference is I was coming from a really, really diverse school. At South of Lathrop, we had a mix of like every culture you could possibly imagine, and I thought the world was kind of shaped that way. Then I got to like the U of M programs and it was just like, wasn't diverse at all. I was like one of the only black students involved in that. But then when I started getting involved with the youth ensembles, it was like, oh, okay. We're dealing with predominantly students from the city and its outlining suburbs. There was a, a lot of students of color that are participating in this program. And it was the first time I realized, like, okay, we really do have something unique here in the Metro Detroit area with the type of diversity we have that isn't necessarily representative of the way the rest of the country is set up. We have this hub of creativity, you know, and culture. And it was really beautiful to see that. And then also to look above and see that our leadership was also black, was something that was just really, really impactful as well. I remember meeting Daisy Newman and just being in awe of her presence, who she was as an educator, the way she commanded a room when she would speak. Um, so I think that was really a major thing for me and it made me have a greater understanding and appreciation for what the legacy of Renaissance and Cast Tech and DSA and all the school, you know, and King, et cetera, the legacy of what those schools meant to Detroit and how Southfield was just like, you know, an outliner who also could feed into that same, that same thing. So to be able to be downtown um, amongst our community was, uh, was really, really impactful for me. In addition to, of course, just the great musical leaders that we had in front of us with Marcus Belgrave, with Charles Burke, et cetera. So um, just super honored to be a part of that lineage. Not only were you a student, as the program grew, you grew with the program. Yes. You were a student, you served as a mentor, and then you became a director. Talk about that journey and uh, what it means to, to be a part of that growth. Yeah, so, you know, as I was coming out of high school, it was pretty, I kind of started to step into leadership roles pretty naturally. I was so heavily influenced and my life was truly changed by the educators that I had, that I immediately kind of had this desire to share that same sort of, you know, educational experience with students. So when I started at Michigan State, even then I was working with some of my peers who were just starting to learn how to improvise and teaching them things. I started going out to local schools and working with them. I was always coming back and working that's out for later for their band camps and things like that. So education was like a really natural part of who I knew I wanted to be. And I remember, I believe it was the summer after my freshman year at Michigan State, um, I ended up subbing for uh, one of my best friends, Solomon Parham. He couldn't teach the Civic Summer Institute. 
And so he asked me if I could fill in for him. So I ended up filling in, in for him. Uh, Omar Butler ended up coming in as a special guest. We ended up, you know, working with a bunch of young students. I mean, it was really, really quite something because I'm working directly under Marcus Belgrave, moving from having been his student for a year to now working with him as a mentor. From there, years later, Rodney Whitaker ended up taking over the, the jazz program, and he had a lot of his college students from Michigan State come down to serve as mentors. So I'm working as a mentor for a few years. And then when I started my master's program, I ended up directing one of the lower ensembles, eventually leading up to directing CJO. And so it was really kind of like this natural progression that I think is something that's pretty unique to Detroit, where there really is this sense of a pipeline of, okay, we see you from the moment that you start playing, and you have some sort of affiliation with one of the programs, and the people in the community are watching you and saying, okay, good, let's go this opportunity and see how you do with it. Okay, great, you should participate in this ensemble. Okay, you might be able to mentor. And so it's really like this ladder that you climb in the education circle, and you're really kind of, you're giving back and you're receiving at the same time. So the entire time, it was a learning process for me. And you know, what great shoulders to, to be walking on. I mean, I remember when I was in Civic Jazz, Marcus Belgrave was directing and we were rehearsing in the Matrix building, which we weren't at, you remember that we weren't actually in the facility. We were down the street because was, there was no educational facility. There was just orchestra hall stage. So we were down the street at this office building amongst these cubicles rehearsing. That's where Civic Jazz rehearsed. But I remember Marcus Belgrave's son, Kassan, used to come with him. His mom would bring him to all the rehearsals and he must've been like four or five years old. And he's sitting there just watching the rehearsals. I'm just going to be like, oh man, that's Marcus's son. That's cool. Years and years later, I'm directing civic jazz and Kassan is playing lead alto in my band. And I had to bring my sons to one of my rehearsals. And my oldest son, Bennett, was like four or five at the time. And I'm just looking. And I'm looking at Kassan. I'm looking over in the corner. I'm looking at Bennett. And I'm like, this is crazy. And then Marcus shows up to hear Kassan rehearsing in the group. And it's like my mind literally just exploded in that moment. Because to me, that's exactly what lineage is. That's exactly what happens. I pray that one day, you know, if Bennett decides to continue in music or Jonah, my, my two sons, that they'll be involved in a situation where Kassan will be like a mentor or a director or something. You know, because we just keep passing that torch on. I think that's the thing that's beautiful about our community. Yeah, definitely. Civic provided the, the nurturing training ground for, for us to grow. For those of you who don't know, that's how Chris and I met back in the day in the civic training programs. Right. And you could grow in any way possible. For me personally, I grew not only as a musician, but in administration and in the nonprofit mm-hmm. world, just having the opportunity to be the librarian of the, the training ensembles. Back then there was Civic Orchestra and Symphonia had just been born. Wow. And so learning how to manage the music and having access to the music and to the staff, the administration there and being around Charles Burke and Daisy Newman and Kevin Tan and all of the general managers, you learn and you grew. And then the next thing, hey, would you like to be um, the coordinator of the civic youth ensembles? I can do that. You know, you graduate from college, you're doing that and you're learning and growing and sucking up all of this knowledge and wisdom that they share with you. And then I was invited to come back and conduct the younger string ensemble and build and grow in that way. Have you faced any obstacles in your journey in life that civic helped prepare you for? Absolutely. Um, I'd say quite a few. I think one of the biggest things was understanding at an early age that you're going to be thrown into situations that might be somewhat uncomfortable and having to learn how to adapt. 
And I think, you know, the very first summer that I did Civic, it was for the Summer Institute, there was actually no jazz program yet. So I was just doing the, the orchestra, which is something I was comfortable with, but it was also, you know, it wasn't what most of my experiences were. So I quickly had to adapt to playing all of this music, to being around all this greatness, to, to operating under pressure. And then immediately I get thrown into the jazz group and we're being thrown all these solos and all this really difficult music. Some of which is music that would still be difficult if we played it today, you know? We were in high school playing this. And I think really what it came down to was <clears throat> there's no excuse. There's just preparation. There's just showing up, doing your part, putting in the work. And it was presented to us in such a matter-of-fact way that it was almost like we didn't really understand exactly how difficult what was being asked of us was. So we just stepped into it. And I think that's happened time and time again. You know, I always tell the story about my first time with the bass orchestra. I was thrown in with no rehearsals and just expected immediately to, to just get into it. But what it reminded me was of playing some music with Marcus Belgrade or playing in the orchestra or just being thrown into this really challenging situation that felt larger than life. So I think having those experiences early on, it made it less shocking as a professional to end up in those situations. Yeah, and the bar of excellence was always there. That's what was expected was for us to not just reach excellence, but exceed excellence. And as you stated, prepare, meet yeah. the challenge, do what's in front of you, put the work in, and, and it may be challenging, it may be new or uncharted territory, but you go for it. You utilize your resources and as I said, you just meet those challenges. And, and that's what was always expected of us. Yeah, we didn't have a choice because it was like, you're going to be on that stage. What you suit on, right. ready to go. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And again, you just dive right in. I think that's one of the things that are, that are beautiful. Yeah. So I want to shift gears a little bit. We're celebrating Jazz Appreciation Month at WRCJ, in specific Detroit Jazz. Yes. And we know that we have such a rich jazz culture here in the city of Detroit. Can you talk about learning the Detroit jazz history, growing up in the jazz community, and now carrying on that legacy yourself? For sure. There were three major jazz educators in Detroit that while I was in high school, I was fortunate enough to work with. Um, and in order, they were Harold McKinney then Wendell Harrison, and then finally Marcus Belgrade. Uh, with Harold McKinney, I think I was probably a sophomore in high school, and my a friend of mine, Charles Wilson, who played tenor in, in CJO eventually. But uh, his dad was like a serious jazz head, just loved jazz, wanted nothing more than for his son to play jazz, right? And he would come and he would, he would pick us up. It was myself, my friend Andrew Klein, and Charles. He would pick us up and take us down to the Serengeti Ballroom. Not the gallery, but you remember the ballroom, right? Yes. Orchestra, you walk up to on Grand there. River. You know what? Was that the one on Grand? No, that's the ballroom. This was the one. The ballroom was the one on Woodward. And it was right above like the veterans. Uh, There's like a veteran. Right. Yeah. You walk up these stairs to this yeah. pretty much abandoned looking building. It was rough. Right? Yep. Abandoned mm -hmm. looking building. You walk up the stairs and you go in and it's old abandoned ballroom. I mean, it's gorgeous though. And so you walk up there. And you pay like $5. There's like a $5 admission fee. And you write down what song you want to play. And I remember the first time I went, I didn't know anything. I have no, I was like, I don't know what's, I don't know any songs. 
I didn't know anything. So I wrote down, you know, my name and my instrument. We go into the back. He had like a mint, like some mentors that would kind of work with you a little bit before you got on stage to play for Harold McKinney. And I was like, I don't even know who Harold McKinney is. I was just terrified out of my mind, right? We go back there and there were you know, some of the mentors, I believe it was uh, this man named Dalton, if I'm not mistaken, Dalton. Dalton Moss. Yeah, Dalton. And he was working with us on this tune four. And I was like, I don't, I'm reading out of a real book, looking at four. So I'm playing it. We get on stage, Harold McKinney on the spot takes his pencil out and starts writing an arrangement and gives us harmonies to play. He's giving us all this advice. And it's crazy because we're on this stage. And when you look out into the audience, it's it's gorgeous because you can see what this ballroom looked like at one point in time. So it's like this really gorgeous set, but it's like got that abandoned kind of like worn down feel, but it was also really cool. And he would just work with you and give you advice. And I started going there almost every single week and getting coached by Harold McKinney on like what scales to play and how to approach the music and I mean I met Stan Baywall for the first time down there uh I used to run Coldy Gibbons used to come down the time Salvin Parham uh Bosco a lot of musicians on the scene and they were like you know probably in their like early 20s at the time so they're coming down they're also getting coached and it was just this really great generational thing that we got to witness where all of a sudden we're getting this feedback from Harold McKinney, but we're also getting mentorship from the musicians who are a little bit older than us as well. And we got to play every week and just be exposed. And I remember, uh, I think it was Lynn Roundtree at the time was coming down. Uh, I can't remember if that was at Baker's there, but anyway, I remember he was like, hey man, you got to check out Clifford Brown with strings, right? I used to get so many advice. Oh yeah, go check out uh, Miles Davis live with the plug nickel. All these musicians were around me and basically what they were talking about is like, go check out these records, go check out this. So it was really this great opportunity of mentorship in true Detroit fashion. Um, I found out, you know, later, uh, Wendell Harrison started coming down and working at South Lathrop. Damon Crutcher hired him to do some workshops with our jazz combo. So I'm working out of the Beboppers method book, working with, Her- you know, working with Wendell Harrison. I used to go down to, do you remember Tom's Oyster Bar? There was a yeah, Tom, yeah. Tom's Oyster Bar. There was one in Franklin, like right, you know, right by Southwood, right around the corner, right on Northwestern, right. off and of then, right, and then the one downtown, uh, right. off of right. Jefferson. They used to have a weekly gig. It was duet Harold McKinney and Wendell Harrison, and we would just go and just listen to them play duet at like background music at Tom's Oyster Bar. Not nearly old enough to get to any of these places. Then I found out that uh, there was a jam session. Uh, at Baker's on Sunday night. So we started going to the Sunday night. Actually, no, I think it was a Tuesday night. So we would be out till like 11 o'clock at night on a school night <laughs> going to these jam sessions. And we're like 13 years old, right? But it was like, to them, it was like, okay, as long as you guys don't don't try to drink or anything, come on down. Because it was long before there were a bunch of educational programs. It was really huge for there to be a jazz educational program through Civic. Because prior to that, the jazz people just kind of went wherever. But there was something really cool, too, about just showing up where the music was. But we got to really see and interface with so many of the Detroit legends. James Carter would come sit in all the time and we'd just sit there and have our minds blown. So it was really dope to just kind of see the community that was around and to really kind of feel like you're a part of that. And then you realize that a lot of these musicians, like Ralph Armstrong, James Carter, et cetera, are world-renowned musicians who just happen to be from Detroit and will show up to these jam sessions and interface with these you know, young students. It was a, it's pretty remarkable. And it happened just by showing up and being there. If you weren't there, you couldn't soak up that experience at all. And people like a James Carter and a Ralph Armstrong, 
they're just willing, like you said, they're world-renowned musicians, but they're willing because of their love for music and their love of passing it on. They're willing to take you in, show you, guide you, like you said about uh, being at the Serengeti, that right on the spot, writing in your music and giving you advice right there, that's priceless, but that's the community. And it doesn't matter who you are, what instrument you want to play. If you want to learn, come on down. Yeah. <laughs> Jump in and we'll help you. And it may seem scary or it might be challenging, but the more you do it, uh, the more comfortable it becomes and you build those relationships and, and friendships with those very musicians that you admire. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, and it wasn't always you know, this perfect educational model with curriculum development and all that, to be honest with you, there was a benefit of it not being that. It was real and it was honest. It was, it really, was organic. It was organic. It was extremely organic. Thank you. And it was like musicians just getting together, making music, and we got to witness that. And then a lot of times it was like we got sent home with our tails between our legs. It's like, okay, go figure it out. So we're like, all right, I got to go to the jam session next Tuesday night at Baker's. I have what is Equinox. They keep playing the song Equinox. So we're going long before the days of uh you know spotify this is when there was napster and it was illegal right and audio galaxy remember remember audio galaxy they would take like five hours to download one mp3 and we were searching for recordings of equinox hoping we're not putting viruses on our computer right just to try to figure out yes we would go to street corner music in uh beverly hills right on 13 in southfield uh and we still go there right because i think they're on uh greenfield and so we used to go there and we would go to the used cd section and they would let you listen to them before you buy them but we didn't have any money so we would just go to the used cd section and just sit there and just listen as much until they would kick us out i mean but it was a trip it was like it was very different the access is very different now but i want to say that it meant a little bit more to some of us back then it was so rare to be able to, we weren't like inundated with it every day like we are now. You tell yeah. a student like, hey man, uh, go check out Miles Davis Kind of Blue. They can get on YouTube and within five seconds they can be listening to it. And now it's like, no nah, man, if you wanted to listen to that, we had to order it. We had to save up our allowance money, figure out, try to get the store to order it. Hope they have it in stock, all that, you know? Uh, God forbid we find it on vinyl then we got to try to get a record player to work. It was a different time, you know? Definitely. You know? We did what we had to do. And the thing is, we had privileges that those before us didn't have. Because as much Absolutely. as people say, like, oh, that was a challenge. And these kids now don't have those challenges. There were challenges that we didn't have to face that other people had to face. Man, could you Absolutely. imagine, like, if your only reference for something was off of, off of vinyl, like, the, the limitation of even being able to just rewind. Even a cassette would be easier to rewind and check stuff out on, right? Yep. But for them, it was like, nah, man, this is a record. You know, absolutely. You go even further back, it was a Victrola. You go even further back, it was going to see it live, and there's no documentation of it at all. So to me, it's like technology keeps moving, the music keeps moving forward, and it's dope. You know. What about carrying on that legacy yourself? This Detroit jazz legacy that we were talking about. I think there's something about two major things: um, being accessible for students to just have conversations with, being around supporting their performances, showing up when you can, attending jam sessions, just being on the scene, having perform, you know, having performances. So just being accessible as well as continuing to push forward with your own artistry. Cause I think that was the major thing. It was like Harold, to me, Harold McKinney, Marcus Belgrave, Wendell Harrison. I never saw them just as teachers. As a matter of fact, I always saw them primarily 
as musicians who are working musicians who happen to also teach. And so I make it a point, like I don't, for my own personal journey, I don't want to be a music teacher who happens to perform, happens to write. I am primarily an artist. I primarily create content, do film scores and compositions and big band arrangements and you know my own individual thing and with my band. And then in addition to that, I also share that knowledge through teaching. And that's really important for me because that inspiration that I'm pulling from for myself primarily, but then if I can share that inspiration with a student, that can help propel them for, further than like a private lesson would in many cases. Now that private lesson can be very pivotal for them, but for them to even have the, the inspiration to want to get to a higher level or to have something to aspire to is something that I think is really, is, is really important. And it's really like kind of at the nucleus of, of who I am. And I remember like finding out years later that I was around a lot of musicians who did everything. They would play, they would write, they would teach, produce, do record sessions, all that stuff. And for a while, I thought that was normal. Then I found out there are some musicians, and this is like without even an ounce of judgment, there are plenty of musicians who just play, plenty of musicians who just write and are great at it. But I got used to just being around a bunch of people that did all of it. And so for me, it was like, okay, cool. I want to do all of it. So uh, I think just being putting yourself out there and being accessible is really important. So Chris, you always use music. You use music as a way to explore life. You use music to give back. And you also use music to educate amongst many other things. You uh, had Jim Crow's Tears. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. You have your custom-made tailor-pinned arrangements, whether it's for trombone and African-American spirituals or pop tunes for youth strings groups, or as we talked about, um, educating the next generation or your peers. Can you talk a little bit about this new online education program, Progressions You Should Know, and helping to overcome harmonic illiteracy? Yes, absolutely. So when I was at University of Utah, I, um, one of the things that I noticed was really impactful as an educator was just having kind of an open door policy for my office hours. Students knew they could schedule, any student in the jazz department could schedule an office hour with me, whether they were actively taking one of my classes or not, anybody could schedule it. Oftentimes though, when I was in Utah, I would just be there all day. I would just get up in the morning, go to the office and I'd just be working. I'd just be working on music, teaching my class, go back working on music. And I used to be there until pretty late at night. And the idea was like, anytime you want to, you can pop through, you can see what I'm working on, you can shadow me, you can ask questions. I just kind of had like this open door policy. If you want to come by and get some information, my office hours ended up being in some cases more impactful than the classes themselves. Because the students were able to ask very specific questions and interface in a very different way that wasn't just like, oh, I'm trying to earn a grade right now, or oh, I'm trying to do this, that, and the other. Instead, it was very student centric. So I started an online platform um, called Office Hours with Chris Johnson. And I just started just basically just building up just these online, you know, quick tips, sometimes longer lessons, and eventually created the course Progressions You Should Know. Because what I noticed is a lot of students, even the ones who went to school and studied theory, in some cases, especially the ones who went to school and took the theory classes and all that, they learned enough about what a secondary dominant was or you know, a six, five suspension or whatever, they knew 
enough to pass the class, but it didn't resonate with them in a way where it was like, I fully understand this. I can hear this and I can apply this. It was kind of like book knowledge. They could write it out on paper and then it just kind of went away after the test. And to me, I think what a lot of musicians suffer from is I, I call it har harmonic illiteracy, where they don't really understand the basic functions of music and how those basic functions of music can change the way that they improvise, change the way they perform, change the way that they, you know, compose all of those things. And what I started to find is, is I would teach the same lessons over and over again in person. All right, cool. Let's sit down. Let's work on this two, five, one. And we would work on it a very specific way. And I, I had taught it hundreds of times. It's like, you know what? I should really like put this in video format and have it documented where it's like, hey, let's break down this progression. And then all of a sudden it was like, man, let me just go through over 20 different progressions that just every musician should be aware of. And that's how Progressions You Should Know was born. And uh, it's been really great for a lot of students. A lot of students have been able to break through barriers because the way that it works with students is it meets them where they are. And no matter what type of learner you are. So if you're more of a visual learner where you need to see it on sheet music, the sheet music's on the screen as you're learning. If you're more of like visual, but instead of sheet music, you prefer to see like a piano keyboard and you need to see the symmetry, that's also on the screen. I'm also playing it. So if you need to be able to just hear it and learn it orally, that's, you're hearing that as well. And I'm also talking the students through it as well. So if they're, you know, reacting to the fact that I'm verbally explaining it. So my goal is in my educational practice is to really be able to not leave any type of student behind and really be able to break things down in a way where every student can understand. And also the benefit of these pre-recorded lessons is students can pace themselves in a very different way than they can in a classroom. Sometimes in a classroom, it's really intimidating. They're not in a comfortable space. They're sitting in this classroom. So now they could be at their home in their little home studio with a keyboard in front of them. They can pause, they can stop, they can rewind, go over lessons as many times as they want to. And they have a lifetime, they have access to a lifetime resource to help them be able to grow as musicians. So how can students take advantage of this awesome program that you've created? They can simply visit officehourswithchrisjohnson.com. And Chris is spelled K-R-I-S. So officehourswithchrisjohnson.com. So Chris, what's next? You've done so many incredible things and the, the list goes on as far as the amazing things that you have already done. What's next for you? Are you allowed to tell us? I, I can tell you. I can definitely tell. First of all, thank you. I really appreciate that. And um, I'm really happy to see all the things that you're doing. And I'm, it's really dope you have this show. And thank you for taking the time to, to feature us artists because we need a platform. And also to have an informed musician to talk to while we're talking about our craft is, is awesome. So and it's always great to talk to you as well. Um, Thanks, Chris. Of course, of course. Um, right now, I'm working on a number of different commission projects for my big band. So right now, a lot of what the big band is doing, um, I'm in the middle of a commission for Kamal Kenyatta. Uh, this will be our... I believe this will be the fourth song that I've arranged and done a video for, for Kamal Kenyatta, who's a great artist from Detroit, who's now in San Diego, um, Grammy award-winning producer for Gregory Porter and a number of other people and, and, and a mentor of mine. So I'm wrapping up a, a commission from him right now, um, as well as another commission from a great percussionist, Mark Whitsett, that we're working on for a single for, for his upcoming album. And in addition to that, I'm doing a lot of video editing right now. So uh, I'm about to do a lot of video editing actually for the Civic Ensembles. I'm affiliated with them right now because I'm doing the video editing for their upcoming virtual concert. So for this next cycle of all the virtual concerts they're doing, I'm working together with Darrell Abe Campbell 
who's editing the audio and I'm putting together the videos so that we can have a great virtual presentation in the midst of this crazy pandemic and just working a ton, just whatever freelance stuff comes up, creating a lot, um, enjoying being home. And honestly, I just spend most of my time right here. So I'm all about just content, editing, freelance, and uh, enjoying all the time I have with my kids. Yeah, and I'm getting married. Oh, well, so. <laughs> You're getting married. I am getting married. I've been engaged for like for a minute. We were supposed to get married last August, uh, but my fiance Lulu Fall and I, um, who go check her out too because she's really dope. Lulufall.com. Just throw that out there. Uh, we do a lot of music projects together as well. But yeah, we're getting married. Um, we had a whole plan, and then you know, COVID happened. So I'm doing a very small, intimate, beautiful wedding. So yeah, lots of uh, lots of wonderful things on the horizon. Um, definitely if you're looking for an opportunity for some educational opportunities, I'm also going to be uh, running a couple of summer camps through the Motown Museum. Um, so if you go to motownmuseum.org and you want your students to be involved in some of those programs, we have a little bit of something for various age groups, definitely something to check out. Um, check out the programs Ignite and Spark, which registration is open now and it's open until June 1st. So make sure you check that out. I'll be doing that this summer uh, as well as getting married and continue to just work. Whew. I don't know when you're going to have time to take a breath or catch your breath, but he is very active, very busy, committed to his craft, his family. Congratulations on getting Thank you. free. Thank you so much. I'm exciting. I'm happy for you. Appreciate it. So happy for you. And so excited. All the great things that you are doing musically and personally, and of course, still giving back to the community. Chris, thank you so much for coming on live with C Sharp and being a guest on the show. It's been an absolute joy talking with you and catching up with you and hearing about the phenomenal things that you've done and are doing. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. It's truly always a pleasure. And uh, if you guys don't know, you are witnessing just a really, really great host, a really great musician, great educator, great person. So keep it up. You guys keep subscribing, keep checking her out because she is dope. And uh, I'm just honored to be here talking with one of my best friends. So thank you for being awesome. Thank you.